Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Warner Perry, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Welcome. We've had a little bit of a chat in the last, over the last sort of week or so, I guess, Lorna, but I think we had mutual friends. Is that right? This is how the sort of connections come yes, about? Yes, it's sort of connections by WA have introduced us together. So that's very, thank you there, Pete. Shout out to Pete over in WA. <laughs> and shout out to our colleague uh, at Ocean Tech, Steve Best. Yes, Steve. And he said, look, Steve, I think Steve Best, who's a long-time listener of the show, I'm sure, but I think he must have spoken to you and he goes, oh, you've got to talk to Lorna. You know, if anything, just get her on the podcast and talk all day about oceans and stuff. But Because you're a, you're quite the character, really. Lorna, like has to be said, like I only know you very briefly, but we've had some energetic chats and it's been inspiring. Look, if I look at your LinkedIn profile, which is what a boring engineer does nowadays, yeah. you're listed as a, a positive change maker, mm. passionate, accomplished, purpose-driven, powering change through communication, education, and outreach. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. All those things sound wonderful. <laughs> yeah, quite a checkered career. Spent a lot of time early on working in the communications industry, working in advertising agencies. So you spend a lot of time helping other organizations, brand services, sell more products, usually communication to sell products. And over time, I found that I kept moving away from what they call FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, for those who don't know that term, an acronym. Moving away from, you know, cans of pop and bags of chips and, and stuff like that and, and actually going, no, I actually want to work in brands that have got more of a purpose. And so I found myself sort of migrating across, A, because I was studying nutrition, and being a lot more focused on what you put into your body. So I was like, I can't be working on these brands anymore. So I was moving into sort of more health orientated stuff. And then I was moving into government communication as well. So I was, did a lot of anti-smoking and skin cancer awareness and, and interestingly, some pandemic work as well. What I was doing was using my communication to actually change people's attitudes and actions. And so I was finding that this is where I landed myself in the what makes people tick and how do you use communication for positive purpose and outcome. And so, yeah, that's where I sort of started my whole career. And then I was on maternity leave having my daughter. And while I was away from the industry, we decided with a group of friends to set up a charity called Underwater Earth. 
which is what I'm going to spend most of today talking about because it's my passion. And so, you know, as a, as a scuba diver, it was like, well, why not use communication to benefit the ocean? And and that's really where we all started. So there was a collection of friends and associated colleagues, some of us from the media and arts industry, some from more corporate background, but we were all business orientated and communications orientated. And so we were like, hey, you know, let's do a bit of ocean promotion. We use that term as a as more of a sort of tongue-in-cheek description, but it was it was about using communication to better the ocean. And, you know, back then in 2010, when we formed the charity, to be honest, we were really quite naive. We knew about some key issues affecting the ocean, but last 10, 11 years, I have learned so much. We have all learned so much. We've been on a massive journey and I'll share some of those highlights and insights along the way happily. Yeah. I love talking about it, but yeah, it was a very interesting beginning. Yeah, and it's kind of like, I guess, from an ocean protect perspective and even an engineering slash science perspective, I think historically engineers and scientists have really struggled to communicate in general, really, where I guess the the character that comes to mind is Dilbert, you know, a guy with a, a calculator and a tie and he takes his packed lunch and he wears glasses and he's a bit of a nerd and he doesn't really talk very well, doesn't communicate very well. And that's what a lot of engineers and scientists are, I guess, stereotypically and sometimes accurately portrayed as, you know, introverted individuals know a lot of stuff but don't often know how to communicate it effectively to really drive positive change. And it's something that I guess Jeremy and myself have tried to sort of make better, I guess. We, we are almost trying to find our way and trying to communicate our message better in various different avenues as well. And that's where I guess where I came across you, Lorna, and Underwater Earth. I was like, there's got to be some sort of synergy here. There's got to be some way we can collaborate because we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. We all want to protect our oceans and pollution and various issues affecting the health of our oceans. But we need to, I guess, better collaborate across a whole bunch of groups because we're all trying to achieve the same thing. But how we do that, I'm not sure. If you go back to advertising and most mm. advertising is produced using as very little words and really engaging imagery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That moving footage or, or just stills. But it's about distilling the most important thing you want to say in a, in a way that is really engaging and people interact with it and they remember it. They remember it, they respond to it, and, and hopefully they act on it. And so you apply that to any form of issue. I know you and I have been talking about stormwater runoff, and that is 80% of ocean pollution. <laughs> you know, some, some, some very simple pieces of information that if you can get people to understand it, and they will make them think, hang on a minute, my actions are creating litter that are creating potential stormwater runoff that are creating ocean pollution. Boom. You know, you've just got to take people on that journey and help them to improve the way they, um, yeah. Anyway. Well, well <laughs> what does underwater earth do? I mean, what, what is your core focus? So I, I was I was alluding to when we started back in 2010, I think it's really what we were trying to achieve then is absolutely still, you know, our driving force now. We realized that you can't talk to people about saving the ocean if people don't understand what the ocean is. And by talking about what is the ocean, of course, everyone knows, well, it's, you know, a large body of water somewhere out there. Some people don't live near it. Some people live a long way away from it. But there's a, people have an element of the concept of what the ocean is, but they don't know, you know, quite how magical and amazing it is you know, at what's underneath the waves. They don't know about the ocean's importance. They don't know necessarily about the ocean's issues. And therefore, they don't go, well, 
why should I care? You know, they don't actually have enough love for the ocean to want to do something to protect it. So we were going, well, you know, if we've used this language out of sight, out of mind, in fact, many people use it. If you can't appreciate the ocean, then you, we've got to actually help people to understand the ocean. So we started off with a, we need to reveal the ocean. How do we reveal the ocean? People can't see underneath the waves. Well, what better way of doing that than Google Street View underwater? So we just thought this was a great way of really getting people to increase their connection with the ocean, understand it, by just taking them exploring, feel the awe and the wonder and the sense of adventure of just going underwater and tracking along and seeing what you can find. We were chatting with Google here in Australia and there was someone there that was championing our cause and going, yeah, well, you know, I think you need to go over to the US and, and try and pitch this to, you know, the head honchos. So a couple of our team members went over to the US. They met with John Henke. So he was significant within the, the Google family. He was the guy that co-founded Google Earth and Google Street View. So he was a really key person to speak to. When we got in front of him, he just said, yeah, we've been trying to do that for ages. We can't make it work. If you can make it work, we'll support you. And so we're just like, Holy crap. Wow. <laughs> We've got this uh, this amazing support from, you know, sort of Google over in Mountain View. And we're like, okay, yeah, now we now the concept that we've got here, we need to make this work. And we've been courting this insurance company called Catlin, who were then rebranded to Excel Catlin are now part of the Exa family. But back then they were going, Well, we we want to support you. We really believe in sponsoring products and projects for good, you know, sort of moving away from corporate sponsorship in the traditional model of a sports event or a sports team or an art art event. They were much more in the, we want to sponsor positive science and development. And they loved this whole area of ocean science. So they said, we will sponsor you through three months. You build the camera, make it work, prove to the world that it works. and, And if you get if you can get it over the line, then we'll talk about a much longer relationship. And so built a prototype. We got it into the water in a number of locations, one of the Philippines, Hawaii, and a couple of places in Australia. And then we managed to negotiate a spot at the Economist World Ocean Summit. And we actually launched Google Street View to a, a closed community. And we actually used a Google Street View Hangout from underwater to launch it. And we created such a huge buzz because everyone was going, what? Google Street View underwater. And there was this massive media response. And so, you know, on the back of that, Catelyn said, all right, all right, you've done really well with your three months. Let's talk about a longer relationship. And so on the back of that, we actually partnered with the University of Queensland and Professor Ove Helguberg eminent coral reef and climate science scientist. And we devised the Catlin Seaview Survey, which was a six-year coral reef global survey. So we used our cameras to not only reveal in Street View underwater environments, but we actually used our cameras to do scientific surveying. So I should probably chat to you about our cameras well, yeah, yeah, because it is a it is a very fancy camera. It's not like you've just taken a phone underwater. <laughs> we love a backstory. So, was it your aim to when you incorporated the song for profit? Was it with the aim to create Google Street View underwater? Was that always your idea? It was our starting idea. Okay, but it was also, you know, I still was on maternity leave. I was going back to a world of advertising. Different members of the teams had different jobs and 
we weren't sure that this was going to become a a full-time gig for us. We were, and and sustainable as well. It really was, uh, well, let's just see what we can do and have some fun along the way. (laughs) And, you know, this is why this Google Street View concept to us was just so darn cool and exciting. And when when someone like Google says, yeah, we tried it and couldn't make it work, that's even more fun. (laughs) (laughs) So absolutely, our vision was that we would make a difference. We just didn't know quite how hard the job was going to be because so many people were lacking in engagement with the ocean. So I guess the idea was to essentially bring underwater to the surface, to the the masses, to the population. But I guess the concept of Google Street View wasn't really formed. It was just a case of let's try and take underwater footage and you know, share it to the people on land. Absolutely. But obviously, when this Google Street View concept came about, it sort of went, oh, okay, that's that's one way of doing it, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, if you think about it, some, well, you wouldn't know this, but some of our images are, are seen in the millions. Well, I've just read on your website that you've had like a million views or a billion views. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, you know, collectively, you add all the views together, you've got, you know, billions of views, but that doesn't mean billions of different people have seen it. I haven't got the stats to tell you how many people, but I mean, Google did say to us that the image that we launched Google Street View with has been seen by more people in the first month than have ever dived before. And that's the thing that we're trying to do. You know, there's such a small proportion of people snorkel or scuba dive, and they're the ones that really get an understanding of what's under the waves. You know, a lot of other people have relationships with the ocean, but they, you know, be sailors, surfers, swimmers, but you've got to be underneath and really get amongst all the critters in the different environments to really appreciate the diversity, the complexity of, of those ocean environments and just, you know, the sheer magic. So Google Street View allowed us to do that. And I mean, we've been to so many locations around the world now. Um, I know the cameras have done 70 different missions over 30, 35 different countries. So if you oh, think wow. of the amount of visual content and those cameras, and I'm going to come back to the cameras, I know mm. I'm talking about the cameras, <laughs> have taken over a million images. So wow. those images are not just for taking people virtual diving, but also for science. That's really cool. That, that part's really cool that you've managed to, to, you're getting data and you're building public awareness. I mean, you see that more and more in organisations now that, you know, it's all about the data, but especially considering the unique work that you guys are doing to get as much data as possible is cool. Is, is this a social science thing? Like, could Brad and I get a camera and I can, you know, go and have a look in New Zealand? The cameras are about 65 kilos in weight and there's Ooh. four of them in existence. Wow. <laughs> so, no, you can't have No, one. okay, that's, that's a no. <laughs> I'm, I'm in isolation at the moment, so I can't, I can't go anywhere. Yeah, so what the cameras are, okay, so to visualise this, there's a military-grade underwater scooter and then there's a long nose and on the on the end is an orb with three SLR cameras embedded within it. There's a tablet in a custom-made underwater housing. The diver who navigates the, the scooter through the water can control the cameras using that underwater tablet. So as I said, 65 kilos in weight. So you need a davit, a lifting arm, or very, very strong group of people to drop it very carefully into the water. I mean, it's neutrally buoyant once you get into the water and it travels about two to three kilometers through the so it pulls you. It, it, yes, exactly. It's got a prop on the end, and so the diver navigates it, and it's got a manual mode. 
and it's got an auto mode. And the auto mode is what the scientists use because then it fires every two to three seconds so that you, as you are doing a, a scientific transect, you capture the data, the, the visual data in a fixed methodology. If you put it on manual mode, you can travel wherever you like. And that's what we do more for our Google Street View work because that allows you to go and chase the manta over there or, or go closer to the the sharks, uh, although the sharks love to come to the cameras, actually, because I think it's the noise or the electrical sort of energy that's being pulled from them. The sharks actually come to the cameras, but it allows you that flexibility to go where you want to. And if people are hearing all this and wanted to actually jump on Google Street View and see this imagery, how are they best to do it? So you've got to understand how Street View works. If you go into Street View mode, you can travel along streets and you get to look where the blue lines are. You can grab the little peg man and it will highlight all the lines. And that at the same time will highlight any dots in the ocean. But it's harder in the ocean because we might have been, you know, 45 kilometers offshore. So you're not going to be looking in Google Maps that particular way. So we've also housed the content in Google Earth. Through our website, you can get the link to where that is. And that's a collection of the, the best of our content. There's many other, you know, sort of platforms within Google where you can see the content as well. So, yeah, the best bet is the Underwater Earth website. Yeah, I think that's a good starting point. And, look, I've seen, I've seen some of the imagery, and obviously only a little bit because there's a stack there, but what I have seen, it's visually spectacular, isn't it? Oh, and there's so much to see. So, you know, mm. um, you can go you know, with the sea lions in Galapagos and you can see the whale sharks in Mexico and you can, I've got to try and remember, there's like some of my favourites are, are like the eagle ray. I love the eagle ray in Belize. And, but you've also got a lot of other content in there that's, that's much more about telling the magic of the marine creatures and the ocean environments. But there's other imagery in there that's telling, you know, a different story like ghost fishnets that are capturing marine life and, and killing them, you know, sort of that senseless sort of, yeah. And yeah, so whilst there's that visual, you know, content, there's obviously, I have seen, there's basically text descriptions on the, on the side to sort of highlight various issues and facts and figures and all that sort of stuff. And, and like you said, it's such a, an effective tool that wasn't around pre you guys and like you said more people have seen this footage than they have dived and obviously the scuba divers the snorkelers of the world are probably not the guys you want to convince about how wonderful the ocean is it's the individuals that physically can't get underwater and see this footage absolutely which you're obviously reaching on a on a mass scale Mm. and telling this story and celebrating how amazing the ocean is and how important it is to protect it i mean the ocean is inaccessible to most either because of geography, practicality, finances. But even when you get to the ocean, it's not a natural thing to then go under. So, you know, it really is inaccessible to most people. And so for you to fall in love with the ocean, you've got to find other ways of getting people to to understand. And, you know, the David Attenboroughs of this world have done magical things with, you know, their documentaries, and we complement that work. Um, I'll just math check me, but Brad, there's what, 8 billion people in the world? And I've just, I've just Googled, there's roughly 9 million scuba divers in the world. Now, so is that 1%? If you, no, I think no. it's less. It's 0.1%. Oh, he's got the calculator out. I didn't know Jeremy had one. the phone. Anyway, well, to your point, uh, a lot of yeah. people love the ocean, but they're scared of the ocean. Like, I mean, Michael Kenneth Wicks doesn't like scuba diving. He loves surfing, loves everything to do with the ocean, but he actually doesn't like going underneath the water. So he's, you know, as you, as you can tell, he's an ocean conservationist. So to be able to bring that up to the people that are 
land bound to the people that have, you know, physical barriers to getting into the water, it's huge. The exposure you're giving it is, everyone's got to jump on, have a look at it. It's, it's such an amazing footage. And the other thing as well is that, you know, each of the images we capture, because there's those three cameras in the head, they, they all fire at the same time. And then those sort of very, very wide angle lenses on those cameras that allow us to create a bubble. So it's a 360 image. So those three images join together, create a 360 image. But that image also can be embedded into Facebook so people can navigate through that bubble on Facebook. It can be used for virtual reality concepts. It can be put into headsets. It was adapted for something called Google Expeditions, which is Google Cardboard virtual reality education in the classroom. So it's not just about Street View. Street View is where this started, but how those 360 images have have moved out of that platform into other Google platforms and into schools and into exhibitions and galleries. And we've, you know, even created our own gallery concept where we have these beautiful wall prints on the wall, but the QR code then allows the viewer to go into the bubble and actually explore that photograph on their own, you know, mobile device. And so there's some really cute, engaging ways that that 360 image can be utilized away from the street view platform as well and so that's that's what we do we we get people virtual diving and really enjoying and understanding that ocean environment exactly and that's sort of that ability to explore increases that engagement as well so you're not just looking at a screen and going oh there's one another image there's another image or sitting back in your lounge room and watching a tv show you have that ability to just walk around or dive around or swim around yourself and sort of i guess follow your own interests as well but it's not just obviously for imagery and and content sake obviously the the key motivation behind this is to essentially build that greater appreciation and awareness for the ocean to obviously drive that greater protection as well I'd love to chat a little bit more about the science as well, because it was Ove, who I mentioned earlier, Professor Ove Hugelberg, who actually came to us and said, this content for Street View is so valuable for science. He said, each of those images is a capture of an ocean environment at a moment in time, and it's GPS tagged. So you could go back two years, five years, 10 years later, and actually go to that same location and capture the same image all of the scientific data that has been collected, they've uh, this one million images I keep referring to, it's all been analysed, image recognition software and machine learning has taught the machines to recognise all these different corals. So as we've moved around the world doing all this survey work, new corals, new locations, it's learned that. And so we've got whole audit of all of those images, what's in those images, it's, it's there now. So when we go back a second time and actually capture the image again, just like that, the machines can analyse how the environment has changed. It's such a powerful scientific tool. And this is what gets, you know, all these wonderful scientists that we've worked with at the University of Queensland and collaborated with all these different science institutions around the world. That's what gets them so excited is that it is so valuable and true and and accurate scientific data. The machines are within 96 to 98% accurate as a, a marine biologist looking at the image and actually doing an audit. I want one. (laughs) no no how deep can they go um the deepest we've taken one was within have you heard of the blue hole in belize i've heard of 
yeah, I blew the whole yeah. lot, didn't know it was going to believe. <laughs> then took it down to about 66 metres. It probably could go deeper, but it hasn't been tested to go down. It's certainly not a camera system that goes down to sort of much much deeper, that sort of deeper sort of coral reef survey area, which, which we have done, but with other camera equipment. How deep Sydney Harbour? Oh, there you are. Well, I don't let's, know. Let's Google it now. Let's Google it on now. <laughs> no, no, I'm just... You know, when we talked about working together and getting on this podcast and how can we work together, I mean, it would be amazing to see Sydney Harbour after a rain event underneath the water. I mean, well, would you be able to see that? Would it be amazing to go out at stormwater outlets after a rain event? And as you say, you've got GPS tracked. This is what it looked like before the storm event. This is what it looked like after. Yep. We have surveyed. We partnered with Sims. Uh, yep. Sydney Institute of Marine yep. Science, and we did a survey, I think, back in 2015. So we do have content that we've taken along Sydney's coastline as well, so outside of the heads but within the harbour as well. It does get murkier as yeah, you yeah. go, you know, up the river system and a lot more sharky. <laughs> yeah. it, yes. Well, it's, it's, it's such an amazing and often the way with great inventions and great initiatives like this is, it's really just a start. I mean, I'm sure you get asked these questions all the time. Like, oh, what other bits of data can you collect while you're there? You know, if you're down there, you're, you're taking imagery, you're, you're, you're giving it back. I mean, are you already thinking about camera number two? That's the exciting part. You've got Google on board. I mean, I'm looking through your website. Lots of people are really supportive of this. What are you going to be doing in two or three years' time? And um, even I'm excited to go, well, from a stormwater point of view, this is the point when we try and communicate our story, we can't take them up a stormwater pipe. You yeah. know, if we could show them how it works, then that would assist us in our little story. So it's wonderful what you've managed to achieve here. Well, what I should say is when we did all the scientific survey work, we started seeing all the corals bleaching when we were our different surveys in Hawaii in 2014 was when we first saw the corals bleaching and and this was an education for us because we were talking to the scientists going what's going on and they explained to us the process of coral bleaching what were the triggers and what was the likelihood of the impact on corals so we were learning as we were going on and it was because we were traveling around all these different coral reef regions we were able to see the the corals as they starting to bleach. And so, you know, when the third, the third global bleaching event was something that we used as a communications device to actually alert the whole world to what was going on. So the whole climate issue became so topical because we were so actively talking about coral bleaching and because we were capturing imagery that really was engaging people and, and explaining to people, you know, what was happening. So um, we took all of this to COP21, which was over in Paris, which was one of the key defining COPs, if you would remember. And it was really powerful to be able to use our imagery to demonstrate. We had imagery of environments pre-bleaching, during bleaching and after bleaching. And it was such a slam dunk for people to actually see over a very short time how an environment can be decimated. And I don't know if everyone's seen Chasing Coral, which is the Netflix original doco, but that documentary team were following us while we were doing all the survey and they were learning about bleaching with us. And that actually became the subject of the documentary that has done so well. It won at Sundance in 2017 when it first came out, the Audience Award for US Documentary, and then later has become a Emmy Award winner, Best Nature Documentary, I believe. So, you know, that communication that has come from our visual records of coral bleaching has really educated large communities all around the world to the issue of 
man-induced heat, climate, you know, CO2 emissions creating excess heat in the ocean that have killed corals and will continue to kill corals. So communication using visual devices is, is really powerful. Yeah, and it's just not, it's not something that engineers and scientists have really done too much about. Like it's interesting how you've come from this advertising and marketing background with all this expertise. And it sounds simple when you say it. Yeah, you've got to keep it visual and the message short and sweet. That's exactly what we haven't done, particularly as Jeremy and myself as stormwater professionals. The message hasn't been simple. We've focused too much on, I guess, the these dissolved pollutants and you know m- making things complicated. And even as I say, say trying to explain how complicated that message has been, I'm sounding complicated when I'm because I don't even know how to do it succinctly. But long story short, we haven't told our story well at all, and we have not used visual aids at all. Like I, I can't even Google image stormwater flow and stormwater pollution because very few people are even taking photos and filming footage of stormwater pollution. And that's why I think a lot of people just don't make the connection between land and sea. A lot of people don't understand that when rain falls on a, on a road or a pavement, it washes it and straight into our waterways. Just for the record for the listeners, engineers do use cameras. He's always doing, sel- <laughs> he's always doing selfies. So you know, you know how to use a camera because you take so many photos oh, of you. So anyway. <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. <laughs> you know, even, even myself, 10 years of being embedded in ocean issues, still there's so much for me to learn. And, you know, just talking with Brad for, I think we've had an hour session and a half an hour session now. There's light bulb moments for me in just what you're telling me, just in terms of what is an issue that's on our streets that then becomes an issue in our waterways that then becomes an issue in our in our ocean. You know, the amount, it, was it 80%? 80% of the plastic in the ocean is is it's just rushed off in stormwater yeah well the the science is showing that has shown that 80 percent of the plastic in our ocean is from land land-based sources but the key transport mechanism is stormwater yeah. so it's not wind blown or just there's almost no other or deliberately it's dumped. deliberately yeah. placed. yeah but that's that's probably that that I'd suggest that's not from land. That's if it's still really dumped from the ocean, that's a that's still part of that twenty percent. But even that's still a fairly minor proportion. The vast majority of our of our plastic load is from land and stormwater is the key mechanism. And it's on your website too, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. People yeah. care about keep people care about pollution that's on the surface of the ocean because if it's on the surface it looks dirty. But yeah. if it's on the bottom of the ocean, no one gives a shit. 
And, and you were saying there's something like 90, 80%? Yeah, 94% of the plastic load in our oceans is on the seafloor. Yeah. So that's just plastic. That's just plastic. And there's, a, a, you know, a hell of a lot of, of other contaminants that go down the stormwater drains, as we all know on the show. And to be able to, to show that to people, like there's one, we had Timmy Silverwood on the show uh, last year or, or whenever it was, and one of the messages he told us was there's actually underground avalanches at the bottom of, of the ocean of, of pollution. Like it's just piled up there and they actually have avalanches of that pollution. It, you know, how do we best better show that? And, you know, what you're doing is giving me light bulb moments to go, well, why yeah. aren't we documenting the pollution that's you know, on the bottom of our ocean? Because yeah. that's, that's killing everything that's on the bottom. But even something as simple as Sydney Harbour, I remember Katie DeFawn, Dr. Katie DeFawn, one of our guests from the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, talking about how there's so many dead zones within Sydney Harbour that not coincidentally are, are basically at the end of stormwater outfalls. And it's one thing for Katie to say dead zones, but I'd, I'd actually love to see what that actually looks like. And that's where I think uh, you know underwater uh, imagery and photography would just tell the story so much better than any scientist or engineer could because you could obviously, I'm guessing you, you could go from one part of Sydney Harbour, which probably has a bit of seagrass and some uh, fish and life, et cetera, and then you know, transect off to the stormwater outfall area and just have this completely stagnant area void of any life. Yep. That for me would tell the story and that's when you go, gee whiz, stormwater is a massive problem in Sydney Harbour. We've got to do something about it and that motivates change. Yep. And I think a lot of people think that Sydney Harbour, because it has improved over the years, is therefore actually one of the healthiest harbours and you know in the world. And actually, that needs to be addressed. Mm. But but again, it, it gets about telling that story. Like when people drive over the Sydney Harbour Bridge or walk or run along the water's edge around Sydney Harbour, it looks lovely. But if you go underneath the surface, at least in uh, uh, large areas of Sydney Harbour, it certainly tells a different story. It's not just underwater cameras that you get into. If you hit projects, you're sort of doing a lot here. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the other projects you have on the go? Yeah, so I think the exhibition concept is something that is really powerful. You know, Street View and all other digital platforms really do get into people's classrooms and living rooms um, and people engage with the content there. But, you know, we really want to actually take it out to more locations and, and events and environments where people are moving around and, and doing their thing. And so the ocean exhibition that we've devised is called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. We take all of these beautiful images that we capture and we make those into wall art. So you can see them as exhibits on the wall, but the QR code allows you to go into the image and you can actually explore that image. We're talking to augmented reality experts who can then also put new information that overlays over the top of that. And so we're, we're looking now at how we can actually activate out of sight, out of mind, the gallery concept in all these quite unexpected locations. So I live near Bondi. So you imagine walking down the promenade at Bondi and you're able to, as you're walking, you've preloaded onto your phone so that you can actually do this. But as you're walking along, up pops augmented reality messages. And so you might have you know, indigenous elder that's actually explaining the sea country relationship 
with that particular area, you may actually have a whale pop up and stats about the seasons when they migrate north and migrate south. And, you know, the populations of the humpback whale along the east eastern seaboard. But you've actually got all this extra information that comes to you from just exploring along that promenade. You've also got the QR codes that then take you into the 360 images because we've been under the water and we've photographed Operation Crayweed replanting crayweed at North Bondi. We've been in and seen the octopuses and the cuttlefish, and we've seen the little seahorses that are so prominent around Sydney Harbour and and also coast. So you actually are telling local people about their local ocean while they are actually walking along the promenade. You know, it's really engaging people. That additional level of engagement and education, I think, is just fun and it's interactive. It's sort of surprising. So uh, this is the concept that we're working on at the moment. So that currently isn't live. It isn't, no. That isn't live, but it's proposed around Sydney Harbour. Yeah. Is it in, is it, has it done, been done anywhere else in the world at all? Well, as far as I know, we are pretty much the only organisation in the world that has the suite of 360-degree image imagery that we have. There are people that do virtual reality video, 360 video and, and filmmaking, but really when it comes to stills, we pretty much, you know, sort of, own that concept. So, no, it's a very unique concept and it is one that we have explored and we have run the exhibition once. We're, we're looking to get it out and about across Sydney, across Australia and globally. Yeah, and it's just one more way of communicating. Like I think historical community education has been maybe a blurb in the local newspaper and a signpost about something boring, whatever, which is fairly unengaging. But it's just, you know, and that might reach some people. In this age of modern technology, we've obviously got these all these other amazing methods to, you know, I guess to piggyback on and to reach a wider audience and, again, to drive that change for better protecting of our oceans or whatever other features we may be looking to sort of communicate about. Mm. And we've also produced two virtual reality films. So with virtual reality films, they're shorter than normal films because they're such a stimulating interactive experience. So imagine wearing a full headset and being taken on a journey for 15 minutes. It's, it's an intensive experience. So they're shorter films than a normal traditional film would be. They're very immersive. And what we are focusing on is stories of hope. So actually telling stories where a situation has been dire and through positive change has created a really wonderful outcome. So Guardians of the Kingdom talks about the community in Tonga. The humpback whales migrate there annually and it's a wonderful place for you to be able to see them. And it's actually become a, a destination for ecotourism. If you want to swim with humpback whales, that is an absolute place for you to visit. And what has happened is over time, the Tongan community who were once traditionally ensconced in hunting the humpback whale and celebrating whale season and having, you know, sort of feasts and, and festivities to celebrate them. They're now recognizing that a humpback whale is worth more alive than dead. And so this story of hope and positive change has come from films like that. That's another area that engineers and scientists just haven't utilized properly. Generally, engineers and scientists are focused on the doom and gloom, whereas 
we obviously need optimism. We are far more attractive to positivity. I remember I read a quote recently, Siddhartha Gautama, who was the guy that eventually became known as Buddha 2,500 years ago, he talked about enlightenment and how a brightness of mind might be the ultimate end goal of enlightenment, but it's also the first step. So to, and without a bright mind, without a positive outlook, we just don't take that first step. So again, that's where I think this sort of advertising marketing involvement in environmental protection is so critically important. You know, it's not just about trying to promote more drinking of Coca-Cola or eating more ice cream or Big Macs. It's also using those skill sets. You know, why do people drink Coca-Cola? The, the slogan is short and sweet. It's enjoy Coca-Cola. If I, if I see an ad for Coca-Cola, it's about all these people having fun and this link between all this amazing cool stuff and Coca-Cola. Whereas in the environmental protection sort of story has been doom and gloom, negativity. I think, sorry, I'm going to get quite advertising speak again. When you are talking to the general public, you have to actually split them down into people that are on different stages of how much they love the ocean. So you can have really passionate people who don't need to be convinced the ocean's important and you can slam dunk them with all the challenging, miserable stuff because the moment they hear that, they're going to go, my God, I need to do something about it. If you tell people sitting over here, right on the other end, that you need to save the ocean, it's critical and there's all this bad stuff happening, they're just going to go, la, 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 I don't know, I don't know, it's too much for me, it's too much for me. Uh, You've got to actually inspire them to love the ocean first and care for it and realize why it's important. And so you have to give them different sets of messaging. And I think you've got to feed in the the negative stuff in a positive way. People have to believe to do something, they're going to make a difference. They've got to believe it. They can't be overwhelmed with the negativity and, and the detail. You've got to actually digest it for them and deliver it to them with a positive tone of voice and give them hope and inspire them to change. You know, we get asked all the time, what can I do? What can I do? And I have to have to go, well, I need to know more about you first to, to help you, you know, in answering that. You know, are you prepared to change your voting practices, write to your MP, stand on a street corner and campaign? Many of you aren't going to do that. You know, they're off put by that. Don't even ask me that. But, you know, if you can say, you know, the smallest of things will make a positive difference. And those smallest of things are not that inconvenient to you and actually will bring not just positivity to the ocean issue, but positivity to your life, positive outcome. If you couch it to them in a way that they will respond to it. When you do an anti-smoking campaign, you can't just tell everyone cigarettes going to kill you. <laughs> You've got to tell that in different different ways. And a wonderful, effective campaign which came out on Father's Day, and it was all just about a father having to tell their child that he had a terminal illness. You pick the message right for that audience, and then you you deliver it in a way. I mean, that is a strong, hard-hitting, but, you, you know, you've got to get the message right for each audience. And you're bang on. I mean, and the, the people that listen to this show generally are ocean fanatics. You know, we, we started the show to really try and get out to the masses, and, and look, I believe we've done a great job, but it's still not the masses. I mean, our ACAST numbers aren't extraordinarily high. I mean, we're proud of everyone that listens to us, and, and, and we thank them for listening to us, but it's not like we've gone global, and that's down to Brad and I not being, you know, very good hosts, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, got, no, it's got nothing to do with all the guests that come on. <laughs> but, but, but you are right. It's how do you get into the living room of the masses and get them to care about the ocean? Well, you've got to understand, as you said, who are they? You know, what, what are their drivers? What are they, what are they going to do? What are they not going to do in order to make some change? 
And that there is something that we don't know, obviously. And, you know, there's a lot of insights into different demographics and age profiles and things as well that come into play in terms of, you know what, actually having a conversation with Gen Y, Gen Z about ocean issues, societal issues is an easier conversation to have because they are more attuned to it. And it's an awful and wonderfully positive thing to say about the younger people is that they are more cause and purpose-led. They are more attuned to doing the right thing. They are looking for the brands that are doing right, have purpose at their center. You know, they are asking the tricky questions. So, you know, those audiences can can be engaged with in a very productive way, but you need to get the message to them. And, you know, that old way of advertising, of sticking in on a TV ad in the middle of Australian Survivor, which that probably is a bad example because there's quite a few people watching Australian Survivor, but, <laughs> <laughs> especially because Laura Wells is on there and we all love Laura. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to take the message to where people are going to see it and consume it. And so, you know, I hate to say it, but TikTok is, you know, an environment now where you, you reach a hell of a lot of people and you can creative, if you use it creatively, can engage them with those issues. And so I, I can't wait to see Jeremy <laughs> on TikTok. <laughs> he is the worst dancer in the world. He'll be. Oh, excuse me. I am the greatest dancer <laughs> of all time. <laughs> Jeremy, you- Je- Jeremy, hang on, backtrack. Jeremy has seen my dance moves in action. Come on. Now, come on. Now, now we're going off script here, but uh, I, Jeremy and myself went to Bali, for example, for a swim on event. <laughs> which was great fun, but uh, the real event, the real event was the dance floor that night. And it has to be said, Jeremy, come on, back me up here. I have to did, say, I light, did I light that bad boy up? No, or you know, look, I have to admit, you know, there's something about a man that moves. And he, he was, I thought he was dancing, um, he looked like he was a goose. But I tell you what, he had a lot of people up there dancing with him. Um, so I, I take that back, Brad. But just don't get a TikTok account. You don't need it. But mate. hang on, hang on. But but in all seriousness, no, no, you're right. Maybe we need. I look. I think like it's to your message, uh, Lorna. Like we probably need to tell our story on a number of different platforms. I think historically, engineers and scientists have gone to conferences or or published in journal articles that only engineers and scientists read if we've got a story what a message we need to communicate to like you said to the masses you know we've got some great podcast listeners i know uh, all i'm saying is that i think no, we need to invest no. in a pair of budgie smugglers and get on tiktok and dance the night away <laughs> i hate to correct you gentlemen but actually tiktok is evolving quite rapidly and there's a large amount of people that are doing dances all in particular formations to particular generic tracks but there is actually a lot more content on there at the moment. And I get my New South Wales updates via TikTok. Really? Yeah, you're, you're saying your New South Wales COVID updates. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they are recognising the community of, of com- communicators are recognising that you have to go to where the audiences are. TikTok has started off, in fact, way before it was copycat dancing. It was more than that. But it has evolved and it's evolving very quickly. And there is a lot of people on there doing a lot of cause marketing and brand marketing there now. So I think you need to get on TikTok and look at it. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I, this, this conversation's going south. Um, I, can, I can see what it's going to happen. But in, all, in all seriousness, so you, you've got a little bit of an insight into Ocean Protect and what we've do, like, done on a 
blow our own trumpet, but we have been very active on a number of different fronts. You know, we've got obviously the podcast, which everyone's listening to. We do a whole bunch of very technical webinars to professionals. We're fairly active in social media, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera. What would you suggest for an organization like us? Like where, where, where should we, how should we be t- better telling our story and communicating our message? Oh, wow. You put me on the stop, spot. We there. are. We are. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so there's two things. There's telling your story. And then there's telling the issue. And the issue is not your story, but the more people that understand the issue, then telling your story becomes easier. Yep. <laughs> so where my passion would be is telling the telling the story of the issue. Well, and that's what we've tried to do. I mean, I don't know if you know, but three years ago, we were called Stormwater 360 Australia. And you'd go to meetings or you're trying to explain to someone who doesn't know anything and they just sort of glaze over like, oh. You lay pipe. A lot of people don't even know that sewage and stormwater are, are different forms of, get of getting water away. So that's what we tried to do when we relaunched ourselves as Ocean Protect and came up with these all these initiatives and podcasts and stuff is to try and communicate exactly what we do. And that's talking about the issue of protecting the ocean. And we just happen to be one form of protection. It's heaps, you know, preventing litter going down, reducing plastic. But ultimately, we, we are one form and it's quite a major form. So that's what we've tried to do. But to hone it down even more into that, would, would you suggest we go on TikTok? I would say that you find a format for communicating your issue in the most engaging way, and then you look at the audiences you want to meet, and then you have to go and meet them where they're hanging out. So it's all very well saying, oh, I, the only way I want my book read is for it to be in a book in a library, but you actually have to go, well, you know what? Most people are now re- reading it on a Kindle or digesting sections of it. I mean, there's apps now that summarize a book so you don't have to read the books. <laughs> you know, the Things change. And so I don't have a TikTok account, but my daughter's account is on my phone and therefore I know about it. <laughs> and I, I am an earlier adopter to TikTok, even though I am a lot older than the normal target audience because I realized that it is evolving and at some stage it will be very powerful. I told my sister, who's 20 years younger than me, to get a TikTok account for her business and her first video produced in a hurry got over a million views. And so rightly or wrongly, the message that she had, no dancing and singing in there, got across to a million people very quickly, whether or not that was a really rich experience or not. You know, there's a lot, that's a deeper conversation to be had. But the reality is that there's a lot of people on there doing a lot of stuff and and it's definitely somewhere that could be explored. I think it's just one more avenue, isn't it? Like one thing at TikTok is, is it's visual and it's short and it's sweet and it's readily digestible. It's, it comes on your phone via the app. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, whilst we've targeted key sort of mediums, you know, whether it be a podcast medium, whether it be a professional seminar, workshop or conference, whatever medium, I think maybe we just need to realize that other groups like Coca-Cola, we do need to work across other platforms, again, to reach a a wider audience. But fundamentally, I think from the ocean, if we just focus on the issue, and I guess one that's really easily communicated and ones we we talk about a fair bit is this issue of plastic pollution in our oceans and where is it coming from? As we talked about at the start, it's coming from land and the key mechanism is stormwater. Hmm. So that's a great story to tell. You've been given a help because in the last 10 years, 
the impact of plastic in our ocean has been so widely communicated. You know, the visuals of, you know, the little seahorse on the cotton bud and the turtle with a straw up its nose and the ring pulled down someone's neck. That visual imagery has already moved the hearts and minds of so many people that I don't want plastic in the ocean. So that is part of the story already told, but they're not connecting the how it gets into the ocean. And so that's the bit that, that needs to be tackled next. Yeah. Have you got any future plans? Is there any scoops you can tell us or anything on the horizon that we can watch out for? I do know that you support the Ocean Lovers Festival. And so Out of Sight, Out of Mind will be at the Ocean Lovers Festival, which is now in March next year. So that's going to be a significant place to engage with people. And we do have the vision of getting that Bondi promenade activated and telling the um, Sydney coastline story there. I am, uh, along with Nita and Kaz from the Ocean Lovers Festival, we're all Hope Spot champions. So the Sydney coast area is recognised as a Mission Blue Hope Spot. So we'll be heavily activating that and also other hope spots from around Australia at the festival. You know, that's going to be a very key piece of engagement. We're having conversations with how Out of Sight, Out of Mind can get into other key locations around New South Wales, as well as other states in Australia. And we're also actively pushing it for a number of venues in Europe at the moment. So, you know, that's a heavy agenda for us. We're also having conversations about getting the out of sight, out of mind concept and our 360 degree content that we've already got from Sydney Harbour and the coast into schools, doing a New South Wales initiative there. There's many, 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 many different things that we're all spidering out looking at, but it's it's just about getting more people virtual diving, more people understanding not only their local ocean environments, but you know what's happening at a global scale. We'll be hotly watching what happens here on the Great Barrier Reef in February, March next year, because we've had a reprieve in 2021. But, you know, on the back of 2016 and 217 and 220 bleaching, there's a likelihood with our ever increasing ocean temperatures that we could see more bleaching on the reef in 2022. And look, if people are keen to maybe reach out to you and contact you or just find out more about the work that you do, are they best jumping on the underwater.earth website? Yeah, underwater.earth. You can find me on LinkedIn, our social media channels. <laughs> not yet TikTok. Not yet. Uh, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Actually, but we will be. So don't you laugh. Well, once once we do, you can be a, a guest <laughs> contributor. Uh, we want to see your dance moves. I actually am pretty good at dance. Oh, there we go. Looks like a good dance off competition. Because Jeremy's hopeless at dancing. And, and I'm even better if I've got tequila inside. Look me. out! <laughs> I was Kaniki in Greece, mate. So um, hang on, Kaniki is that? Is that the main dude? Or no, he wasn't quite. Um, oh, you know, Kaniki, like a- you want a hickey but- from Kaniki? He was the main dude. Hey, mate, listen, listen, I can dance. I can dance. <laughs> oh, well, we'll have to see the evidence of that on TikTok. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, look, with that, Lorna, uh, thank you so much for coming on our show today. It's been wonderful, uh, again, chatting with you. I'm very excited to actually hopefully see you in March at the Ocean Lovers yep. Festival. Again, thanks for coming on our little show today. It's been wonderful. great. It's been a pleasure. It's thank good you. to have some banter. Yeah, <laughs> always. Always. <laughs> boom, boom. All right. Take care, guys. Take the room. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.